0: Hello and welcome to all you quarantined questioners. Thanks for tuning in to Plato and starting off our journey to mess with the madness. Today's craze is problem-solving, one of the most sought-after yet vague competencies of the 21st century. I want to begin with the day I changed my mind about education for good, the day I became jaded. In my freshman year, I was enrolled in a DIFFEQ class and quickly realized that the class was moving way too slowly. So I stopped going. I was doing okay with the homework, and I was teaching myself the content. Plus, I was using that time to do research or schedule meetings, so I didn't feel bad about it at first. One day, though, I was relaxing on a hammock, and I realized that class was coming up soon. So I kind of guilted myself into dropping in. It turned out the class was way behind schedule, and after sitting through the lecture, I could kind of see why. The professor was really unenthusiastic. The example questions were super easy, but he was explaining them in so much detail that it seemed more complicated than it should have been. And most people were falling asleep anyway when the final exam came around the professor uploaded only one practice exam i was feeling pretty confident but practice was literally my teacher as i'm sure it was for most of my peers how was one short practice exam going to be enough for any of us well my answer came as a shock when i flipped over the exam i found that it had the exact same problems as the practice test but with a few of the numbers flipped around a lot of people breathed sighs of relief but i for one was a little bit angry This class was supposed to prepare me to analyze physical situations, turn them into differential equations, and solve for what I cared about. I should have been getting word problems in which interpretation was just as hard as calculation. Instead, we'd been preparing for a full semester for a glorified pattern matching test, like one of those IQ tests where they make you memorize the picture on the card and then flip them over and you have to match them up. I mean, I learned that skill better on the Wii than I did in class. But this got me thinking about what problem solving really is. I mean, what exactly do we mean when we comment great problem-solving skills on a middle school report card? If problem-solving is only referring to the problems we face in class, then it seems too shallow to call it a skill. This contrived selection of problems to solve wasn't just in the math classroom. I saw it in language arts, when we analyzed poems for figurative language. Yeah, there's technically no wrong answer, but really there is an accepted answer. Or even in the science classroom when we followed a specific and predefined procedure to answer questions in chemistry that no student was even thinking to ask, like, what's the pH of my tears? But maybe problem solving is about how we handle the hiccups and inevitable obstacles that come up when we're executing the given process. Yeah, that seems more spontaneous, more creative, more like a skill we need for adapting to new information. But even then, the way we approach those unknown situations is really dependent on our prior experience, matching patterns of previous behavior to the problem we now face. And are these obstacles really the problems we should be tackling? Running into a problem in your experimental setup isn't a cataclysmic failure of the system, it just means you didn't match the right pattern. And solving this small issue isn't gonna resolve the bigger conflicts by itself. In fact, the biggest problems in society have no easy fixes like systemic racism and the wealth gap. And none of the problem solving techniques we apply in class can patch up such deep rooted institutions. So why do we value problem-solving so much? To understand where problem-solving comes from, we're going to start with arguably one of the greatest problem-solving methods of all time, pioneered by arguably one of the greatest philosophers of all time, Socrates' Socratic method. But first, I want us to get a good sense of what a problem really is, starting with the definition. From Merriam-Webster, a problem is, quote, a question raised for inquiry, consideration, or solution, end quote. The word problem comes from the Proto-Indo-European language roots per, which became pro, meaning forward, and guel, which became baline, meaning to throw or to reach. Language is a little bit weird, and this is definitely not a comprehensive history, but that's the roughly accepted origin of the meaning of the word problem, literally something thrown forward or reaching forward for questioning. The forward focus of the roots connects with the words progress and product, which often arise from solving problems. So problems are most often viewed as obstacles thrown in the way of our path forward to the future. So where does the solution come in? Well, as you might be familiar with from chemistry class, solution can have multiple meanings. Its original meaning stems from the Proto-Indo-European reflexive roots *swa* and the root lu, meaning to loosen, divide, or cut apart, together implying to loosen itself, to free itself, or to divide itself. Now, we're mostly comfortable with those first two definitions, which suggest that a solution is a way of untying a problematic knot, or freeing us from the metaphorical chains of a major obstacle. But I think that last definition gives us a hint as to how methods of problem-solving may have developed. Common advice today suggests we should break a problem down into manageable steps, dividing a complicated tangle into a series of simpler knots which we can work to loosen. The root lu also appears in the word analysis, which involves exactly this step-by-step breakdown. As we'll see, this simplification is the basis for all modern methods of problem solving. In other words, we found an assumption we're going to challenge. Get ready to mess with the madness. Back to Socrates. Way back to Socrates. His life is shrouded in mystery since he didn't really write much down. So, most of what we know about his beliefs and teachings, we get from his most famous student, Plato. A slightly biased source, yeah, and funny enough, the struggle to come up with a good overview of what Socrates himself thought, based on his student, Plato, his critic and comedian Aristophanes, and his friend, Xenophon, and those are our only three sources. That's known to scholars as the Socratic problem, as if we needed one more to solve. Their ideas are kind of tangled together, so we can't really distinguish whose was whose, but Plato attributes the method of questioning that he used to get at the tough questions about existence to Socrates. So what is the Socratic method? Socrates famously said, quote, I know only that I know nothing, end quote, which is the gist of every late night stack overflow post the day before the final, and also the starting point for his methodology. No assumptions. Socrates would talk with members of the public who introduced their thesis. For example, back then someone might say, atheists are immoral because they don't believe in God, who is the origin of morality. Socrates then asks a few innocent-sounding questions to lead the citizen into a contradiction of values. In this case, here's how a conversation might go. Socrates asks, Are the Ten Commandments an example of morality given by God? For example, love thy neighbor as thyself. When the citizen says yes, he then asks, If I enjoy donuts, and I give my neighbor a donut, would that be loving my neighbor as I love myself? Sure. Well, it turns out my neighbor was diabetic, so the donut was bad for him, How should I know when something is good or bad for my neighbor so that I may treat them with love? Well, obviously, Socrates, you have to get to know your neighbor in order to love them. But, Socrates asks with a smirk, isn't there some divine revelation in the Bible that could just tell me what's good or bad for my neighbor? If I have to learn that for myself outside of religion, then does religion really give me all of the moral tools I need to practice morality in my daily life? Well, I suppose the citizen starts to sweat a little bit. then Socrates comes in for the kill. So, when Confucius said do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you, was he not talking about the same rule but without God? And wouldn't his followers have been able to put it in practice just as well because they had to learn it all by themselves anyway? You get the idea, Socrates really ran them through the ringer. In this way, the method works through contradiction during conversation, also called dialectic. These Socratic statements are normally phrased as questions with which the public citizen would either agree or disagree, So Socrates and the citizen can agree to use the same logical foundation to progress through ideas. The Socratic method was revolutionary because it gave the average citizen the chance to participate in understanding the world outside of the gods of Olympus. In fact, it was such a freeing and disruptive influence that Socrates was tried and hanged for corrupting the youth of Athens. But the method stuck around, and we still learn to use it today in Socratic circles in grade school and seminar-based classes in college. Investigative journalism emphasizes asking these questions in order to uncover the truth. And of course, the format for questioning everything became the motto for a groundbreaking institution in human discovery, Science Channel. And and also science. Yeah, I meant, I meant science. Fast forward to Francis Bacon, a man whose hotel phone calls were probably confused with room service orders. He lived in the 16th century and formulated what we know today as a scientific method. That's right, all the familiar steps. Find a question, create a hypothesis, make predictions based on that hypothesis, conduct an experiment, analyze the results, compare to the predictions, and finally conclude by rejecting, accepting, or qualifying your hypothesis, suggesting questions for future consideration, and repeat. Whew, that's a mouthful. This method appears to be much more rigorous than the Socratic dialectic, but a closer look reveals that it's pretty much the same thing, just with one person instead of two. Kind of like going from having conversations to starting a podcast. Hmm. In Bacon's version, you're the one coming up with a the thesis and the production of new premises results from your own scientific testing using logic that comes from previous scientific work and trust in your instruments and senses. The beauty of the scientific method is that it can build cumulatively. So scientists don't have to start from first principles to answer questions. It's also self-correcting. So scientists can conduct peer review and repeat experiments to verify new results, sharing in the progress. I think it's important to note that Bacon wasn't the first to think of the scientific method. This thing had been around for centuries in some form or another. Aristotle practically invented the Western view of biology through observation of nature, and plenty of the Islamic Middle Age philosophers had come up with similar concepts. The debate between rationalism and empiricism, or roughly speaking theory versus experiment, has been raging for millennia of human thought. Nevertheless, Bacon did add an essential ingredient into the mix, the -the off-the-shelf, I-can't-believe-it's-not-Socrates-brand, eliminative induction. Like the name suggests, the basis is to eliminate alternative theories by disproving them through experimentation. For example, let's say we want to explore the Darwinian theory of evolution. Well, one way to go about it would be to check out how animals used to look over time. When you get to the fossil records, you find patterns of skeletal development, spongy brain development, and other gradual patterns that stretch back millions of years. Unfortunately, you haven't really proven Darwin's theory. You've only shown that it makes predictions which are consistent with your observations of nature. What you've also done, though, is eliminate any theory in which animals only started walking the earth a couple thousand years ago, and you've definitely eliminated any theories that suggest the earth is younger than those millions of years, say, 6,000. You haven't yet cornered the flat earthers, but then again, that's impossible, since a circle doesn't even have corners. Ha, checkmate. We've now seen two problem-solving methods that break down problems into step-by-step processes, where each step is a simpler logical puzzle or experimental challenge. Both methods also employ a contradiction-based verification system, which means they don't directly determine the truth, but they just eliminate falsehoods. An analogy I like to use is a sculptor who reveals the true shape of our art by carving out the extra material. As Michelangelo put it, quote, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block, before I start my work. It is already there, I just have to chisel away the superfluous material, end quote. So problem solving in this context is not really solution building, it's more like solution sharpening a method to free the solution from extra obscurities. This distinction reveals a couple entrenched assumptions that we can begin to unpack. The breakdown process assumes that large problems can be broken down into smaller and more manageable pieces without losing the integrity of addressing the original problem as a whole. By using contradiction as a verification, the process also assumes that there is only one most efficient solution for any given problem. Going back to the marble block, if the final product is just hidden under the extra marble, then at any given point, there's always one particular strike at the marble that will bring the artist closer to her finished sculpture. In other words, if two solutions approach the problem with different methods, one of them will be the preferred and most efficient solution in the context, even if they both yield the same result. This property is called the path dependence of the problem space and has an interesting implication in physics. But more on that later. Let's look at how these assumptions can lead to some pretty drastic inconsistencies. Breaking down the larger process into simpler tasks sounds a lot like the division of labor system that was used during the Industrial Revolution. This process in turn stemmed from Adam Smith's specialization theory, in which a complicated artisan craft can be broken down into several easier steps. He uses the example of a pin maker. The original pin makers had to learn how to make the heads of the pins, put a hole through them, sharpen the needle end, and so on. But each of these skills could be the specialization of a different worker. Since the individual steps are repeatable and only involve a fraction of the labor skills and materials, this production line system is much more efficient than artisan work. Even better, since the worker is contributing to more finished products at the end, he's also impacting more people than he would if he made the full pens by himself, slowly. But this argument didn't really fly for some thinkers, especially Karl Marx and Henry David Thoreau. These guys saw this single skill system as a form of alienation. Yeah, you technically help build more final products, but your personal input into each of those products is minuscule and might not honestly even make sense without the other pieces. You lose your sense of connection with your work, with society, and with nature by reducing your daily actions to a set of monotonous tasks which don't even seem to relate to the final product. Interestingly enough, Smith was also aware of this shortcoming, saying division of labor would lead to, quote, "...corruption and degeneracy of the great body of the people, unless the government takes some pains to prevent it." End quote. In other words... Unless we're capable about keeping the population engaged, all our pinmakers will turn into pinheads. The reduction of problem-solving to a set of self-contained tasks poses a huge obstacle to the individual advancement of knowledge. Think about an engineer whose job is to design a more efficient filter for coal power plants to reduce sulfur dioxide emissions that cause acid rain. That engineer is now devoting her mind and energy toward a small segment of several large tasks, like environmental protection and energy production. So you might say that she's making a huge impact worldwide. But when she looks at the big picture, what exactly is the problem she's solving? Filtering harmful emissions before they enter the atmosphere sounds great, but that problem was actually created by the process of burning coal to produce energy in the first place. When she's tasked with fixing this process, the underlying assumption is that the process overall is good. It's just the byproducts and the kinks that need to be ironed out. She becomes a cog in the machine. Given the rapid development of climate change, her time and skill would probably better serve humanity by developing renewable energy solutions just one problem. There are a whole lot of coal power plants making big bucks off their energy networks, so uprooting that infrastructure is a lot harder than making the current model more efficient. Because we've already committed so much to the use of coal, there's a lot of money in the game to keep it around. Tweaking minor parts of an existing framework is where most problem solvers find themselves, but this closes them off from the obvious point. What if there's a better way to do things, an entirely different way? And there really often is a better way, But the criteria for better are always changing to reflect the new problems that these engineers are tasked with solving. Resolving inefficiencies of the old infrastructure is not always the most holistic approach, and it's scary to see how this view might conflict with the scientific method, which usually improves on the base of existing knowledge and does little to question the premises taken before it. So let's turn to proof by contradiction, the bane of bigots everywhere. Surely the Socratic method has to be the right way of getting to the truth, After all, it only exposes the hypocrisy in your opponent's argument, so it doesn't require you to make any assumptions before you start. Well, yes and no. On one hand, it is undoubtedly a really effective way of showing someone that their argument can't be the whole truth, because anything that leads to contradiction with reality obviously is not a universal axiom. On the other hand, well, maybe there isn't just one other hand. A postmodern philosopher named Isaiah Berlin argued that there can be no single universal truth, that's truth with a capital T. He suggested instead that human goals are inherently irreconcilable, so it would be absurd to try to harmonize the entirety of the human species. As a case in point, let's take two really big checklist items on the progressive social agenda, transgender rights and sexual equality. Now before I get into it, please remember that this isn't a reflection of my opinion on either problem, it's just a demonstration of how multiple truths exist in our version of an ideal society. One of the ideals of the transgender rights movement is to respect the decision for anyone to transition across genders if they feel that they would be more comfortable expressing themselves that way. For many transgenders, this isn't just a question of anatomy, it's a combination of hormonal influences and especially behavioral conditioning that make them feel uncomfortable in their gender role assigned at birth. But this raises an important caveat when compared against the goals of sexual equality. One of those sociological goals is to ensure that males and females are treated equally so that no pads other than those that are anatomically impossible to them are ever closed off. In other words, ideal sexual equality eliminates that behavioral conditioning that might prompt an individual to transition between genders and express their deeper identity in the first place. Now, you can't just jump to saying that sexual equality and transgender acceptance are two mutually exclusive goals, because plenty of people are justified in believing in and campaigning for both. But you have to be willing to concede that they can't both achieve their ideal end goals, as defined here without inhibiting the other. It made my head spin a little thinking about it at first, but here we see a great example of how really large problems can have multiple intertwined solutions that are both acceptable, but not both possible at the same time. This is pretty revolutionary thinking. Since reality isn't one unified truth, contradictions of theory and reality are bound to happen. So a theorem leading to a contradiction might not even be categorically false. That's a big kink in the Socratic method. I would like to note that this idea existed in a partially realized form for millennia in Hindu mythology, among other ancient cultures. The ancient Hindus believed that good and evil were not really a duality, they were actually two sides of the same coin. What was good in one era, when applied in excess because of derivative influences, would become the evil of the next era, mirroring the cycle of the avatars of Vishnu and Shiva, the bringer of new good and destroyer of evil respectively. In Western philosophy, this idea manifested in Georg Hegel's historical dialectic theory, dialectic, sound familiar? Hegel thought that history was roughly a repetition of the same pattern of power dynamics. Every society starts with the opposed view, which he called the antithesis, and the two of these finally resolve into a synthesis, which becomes the new thesis to be challenged, ad infinitum. When, while Hegel observed that progress in society was defined by contradiction, he suggested that our escape was to embrace this in our understanding of history. To prove his convictions, he argued that the Athenians were justified in executing Socrates for corrupting the youth. Remember that? Not because they were right by our standards today, but because back then, they didn't even have the right antithesis to begin to challenge the status quo. I mean, that's what Socrates was doing. And so, by their laws and interpretations, Socrates was actually a criminal. We'll get to both of these concepts of duality in a future episode, but for now, we've seen that breaking problems down into digestible parts and narrowing down to a solution by eliminating paths that lead to contradiction are far from perfect methods and can actually mislead us from the true problems at hand. So why do we need more problem solvers? The scary truth is that we might not. Even scarier, problem solving might be holding us back from addressing the real issues in our society today. We've seen this happen already. Institutionalized racism in the police force can't be resolved by reforming the police or re-educating them to be more aware of their own biases. Instead, We need to come to terms with the fact that we have overburdened law enforcement as a blanket solution for a bunch of problems that, let's face it, we don't need police to solve. The popular slogan, defund the police, is not a threat to dismantle all of law enforcement with no replacement, but to move a sizable amount of their large budget towards social work and auxiliary services like mental health and suicide prevention centers, with trained professionals who can be called in when confrontations get out of hand in those more nuanced situations. The problem solvers and politicians of the past promised us that reform and training were the best path forward, that progress would come when we added to the existing framework of police training and responsibility. And they still tell us that. Yet looking back, weren't those additions of responsibilities the cause of the poor situational response in the first place? Hindsight is 2020, I guess. The phrase, all cops are bastards, or ACAB has been thrown around a lot recently too, and while a lot of people might shy away from that kind of aggressive tone, I think our initial reaction to it is actually a mistranslation. The word bastardize literally means, quote, to modify especially by introducing discordant or disparate elements, end quote. In other words, by adding a bunch of other duties to the responsibilities of police, some of which overlap and potentially even conflict with each other, the police force literally became a bastard version of its former, more simple self. Vocabulary can go a long way. So, coming back to the issue, what is the engine of real progress if not problem-solving? You might be tempted to point out examples like Albert Einstein, who challenged the really fundamental idea of absolute time in physics to come up with his theory of relativity, or Max Planck for his quantization of energy levels. But the challenges to the fabric of science, or even the fabric of reason in the case of Isaiah Berlin, are pretty rare, and don't actually follow the normal patterns of problem solving. These ideas begin with thought experiments, like Einstein's famous one traveling alongside a beam of light, or Berlin dreaming up of the perfect society. Then. When contradiction inevitably rises, this line of questioning they use doesn't shoot down the previous mode of thought. It broadens it by removing the assumptions that allow the thought experiment to continue. In other words, you can't really travel at the speed of light and there is no perfect society by everyone's standards. They're questioning the ideal setup. The problems they tackle aren't really problems from the linguistic point of view because they aren't facilitating forward motion. They're actually looking to take a step backward and I guess a little bit sideways To move around the obstacle rather than follow the trail into the deep dark forest. I know this might seem counterintuitive because their ideas did bring us progress in the end, but that's how we define progress now. Back then, scientists would have thought that all this quantum mechanics and no universal truths nonsense was just a bunch of tripped out hippie junk. But the step backward is what allows us to reorient and pave our way forward. In our daily lives, this can be really difficult to accomplish. How should we expect to make any personal progress if we're constantly reshaping the mental framework through which we view our problems. Well, one of the best ways to do it is to do exactly what we're doing right now. Recognizing that we do make unproven assumptions about an ideal world as we navigate the real world is important because then we have to justify why we make those assumptions. Normally it's for convenience or sanity, but sometimes it's for the well-being of other people or society as a whole. Above all, what we need today are not problem-solvers, but problem-finders, people like us who are willing to question why we claim our ideals as ideal. For example, why do we need problem solvers? It's questions like this one which truly challenge us to become aware of what makes us tick. When we learn to master our motivations, we will become our own motivations rather than let them control us. As Immanuel Kant might add, human beings should become the ends of the process, not a means to an ideal world. Valuing this sort of critical thinking emphasizes our growth over our destination, and teaches us to appreciate our dynamic place in an ever-changing universe. I know this got kind of meta at the end, but I hope you all had fun and learned something cool today, and thanks for messing with the madness.